Win-win has always been my mantra as I entered negotiations with people. And I, beginning with the end in mind uh, has always been something that I kept top of mind. And probably most important is to first seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Rob Ball, CEO of Shoulder Innovations, a leading orthopedic device company recognized for developing one of the most robust and stable glenoid platforms in the industry. Rob has over 30 issued or pending patents and has been instrumental in the growth of several organizations, most notably Tournier, where he drove the company's top line revenue from 40 million to an impressive 300 million within a handful of years. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, engineers naturally excel at spotting technical problems and finding solutions for them. However, entrepreneurs should always try to balance their technical focus with the commercial aspects when developing a new product. Second, clinical trials are crucial, so set them up in a way in which they answer pertinent questions from clinicians while aligning with the key regulatory requirements. Third, capital efficiency is critical during a startup's early stages. If done the right way, you can both attract further investors and ensure early stage financial partners a good return on their investments. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we just released the latest edition of MedSider Mentors Volume 3, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Jim Persley, CEO of Hinge Health, Carol Burns, CEO of Cajun Vascular, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups of the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, Rob, welcome to MedSider. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Scott. Nice to nice to join you today. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. And for those listening, they can't see our video, and so uh, maybe as, as the uh, as part of the intro, we'll have you uh, strum a little tune on, on the guitar in your in your, in your, in your background. <laughs> then, I, then I would embarrass myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, yeah. but actually, people might lean in and be like, "Wait, this guy runs a you know highly successful startup, has a couple exits under his belt, and plays the guitar." That's that's uh, it's pretty cool. So. Yeah. No, but but joking aside, I, I recorded kind of a, a brief bio of on your on your background, kind of at the outset of this interview. But um, would love to kind of hear it hear it from you first, if you can kind of give us an elevator sure. elevator pitch for your your professional background, uh, heading up, or you know, I guess leading up to um, right. you know, taking on the, the CEO role at, at uh, Shoulder Innovations. Yeah, sure. It's somewhat ironic, actually. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, of all places, and find myself in the orthopedic business, which, of course, I'm sure most of your listeners know that. Stryker being uh, headquartered in Kalamazoo, but um, never had the opportunity to work for Stryker. But I, you know, kind of grew up knowing I was going to be an engineer, spent my time at, it was General Motors Institute or GMI when I was there at the time, but um, I uh, have a bachelor's and master's from Kettering University, 
which it's called now. And, um, you know, have, have enjoyed, uh, an early time in my career in the automotive industry. Um, and I worked for a FPX corporation, which used to be out of Southwest Michigan, but I built a large scale casting and machining facility in all places, Warsaw, Indiana. And, uh, as I moved there, I found, came to understand that my, my neighbor that lived kitty corner was Dane Miller, who of course I'm sure most will recognize as the founder of, of Biomet. And, um, many probably don't remember that Dane was a, his alma mater was GMI as well. So I got to know him a little bit. And transparently, I came to understand in my interactions with Dane that we calculated in the automotive industry margin differently than the medical device industry did. Um, we talked about markup as 20% in the medical device industry. We talk about cost of goods as 20%, right? And <laughs> Um, I immediately knew that, you know, I needed to, to make a change. So I uh, begged my way into Dubuque. That was right around the time that it was acquired by J&J and found myself as a product development engineer in um, in the extremities group, which at the time was not the uh, the most attractive place to be. Of course, hips and knees uh, drove uh, the motives of that business. But I didn't know the difference and I made it my own and, and built a lot of great relationships and, and learned a ton and find myself in a small startup in Southern California called Kineticos Medical. Um, and just it really enjoyed taking what I learned at J&J, which is this is what, what the end looks like on some level uh, from a systems and processes, et cetera, and applied some of that to, uh, to KMI. That ended up uh, being acquired by Integra Life Sciences, which was a great uh, return for investors. But Warburg Pincus was also interested in the business. So I got to know the MedTech team at Warburg Pincus, which had been simultaneously working on the Tournier uh, acquisition. And so as that transpired, they invited me to join the Tournier team. And so I ran R&D at Tournier for about eight years and had clinical and regulatory as well. And we did a lot of neat work. I think we're, you know, 15, 40, 50 million dollars in revenue when I started you know, Doug Kors did a great job helping to lead that business. I think we were in the 300s when I left, more or less organic growth. It was a great opportunity uh, and success. And I really enjoyed my time there and, and met a lot of great folks. I had the opportunity to live in, in France doing that for about five years. So learned a little bit of French and um, uh, learned a lot about myself, honestly, living in a foreign country, which was which was really interesting. But came home, so to speak, to the States in 2013 and that's when we formed Genesis Innovation Group. And I say we, myself, and our two co-founders, Jeff Honderl and Don Running, which we characterize now as just a very early stage uh, investor in medical device technology. And we invest both financial capital and you know talent capital, if you will. And, uh, and so that's Genesis today. One of those portfolio companies is Shoulder Innovations, uh, the most mature. And so um, we raised a Series C in 2020. Uh, into Shoulder Innovations. At that, in that time, I decided to transition and take the CEO role, CEO role at Shoulder Innovations. And and um, I don't want to say it's been bliss ever since, but we've had a nice run of success here and are making some great progress as a company. So that's my short history. So. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, one quick follow-up question, because I know we're going to do it later, but Genesis, yeah. do you, so you don't classify it as a, an accelerator or an incubator. It's more just like an early stage investment fund that as you said, invest both capital and human capital? Yeah, no, I mean, it's an operating, um, there's a component that's an operating consulting organization and an investment vehicle. So we call, Genesis essentially has a product called Cultivate MD, which is an investment vehicle. So there's a number of LPs that have uh, participated in, in investment through Cultivate MD. But if you look at Genesis, it's, it's 
uh, Genesis Innovation Group, think about um, uh, R&D, engineering, regulatory, uh, quality systems, uh, financial operations, governance, those types of functions we can provide to the portfolio. Um, we have a separate subsidiary called Genesis Software Innovations, um, which is all software development. You know, we, we built several platforms from zero lines of code. And then a subset of us also own a business called Revelation Medical Devices in Auburn, Indiana, which is uh, small scale um, and, you know, kind of manufacturing metals and plastics, manufacturing and prototyping. So those three businesses together are kind of the operation that Genesis operates. That's a little under 100 folks at this point and, um, you know, supporting a number of portfolio businesses. So got it. Yeah, OK, that's helpful. Yep. 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 Let's talk a little bit about shoulder innovations. Cause I'm looking at the, the website right now, which is shoulder innovations, just as it sounds.com for those listening that want to learn a little bit more about the, the technology and probably what we'll spend most of our time talking about. Um, sure. But yeah. um, give us, give us at least a high level take of like, what's what, like, obviously what you're, what, what devices like you're developing and commercializing, but like how they're different and maybe, you know, weave into like the, the, or a little bit about the, the origin story before we, you know, go back in time. Um, yeah, sure. Get yeah. Your insights yeah. On. So, so at this point, I'll fast forward all the way to the where we are today is we're pure play shoulder arthroplasty company. All of our products are regulatory cleared. We characterize that we have products prepared and in market that represent about 85% of what happens in a shoulder arthroplasty operating room. So we don't touch today kind of revision surgery or fracture indications, um, you know, working on those, but that's not something we operate in today. So that's the status of shoulder innovations. I characterize that what we're really known for, in fact, a surgeon, John Levy, gave a talk just a couple of weeks ago at a meeting in Miami called the Shoulder 360 meeting and talked about what's called inset glenoids and his statement, not quite word for word, probably almost word for word, which is inset glenoids are synonymous with shoulder innovations. And that's what we're really known for. So two types of shoulder arthroplasties, anatomic and reverse, and perhaps it's not the context to go into those details, but as it relates to anatomic shoulder arthroplasty, where you're trying to replace the articulation substantially as it exists biologically, the problem is loosening of the glenoid component or the scapular side component of that joint. And we have developed a product which solves that problem effectively. So we've proven that in a number of publications um, showing that, you know, biomechanically, it reduces the leading cause of that loosening, which is called rocking horse. And then we have two, five and nine year publications that demonstrate 100% survivorship of those devices. So it's a, it's a great, you know, kind of technology to start with. Of course, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty only represents on a revenue basis about 35 or 40% of the overall shoulder arthroplasty market. So it's a great, great place to start, but we needed to develop the rest of that, you know, kind of bag, so to speak. So for our, so our commercial team could be successful. That insect glenoid was actually invented by a surgeon in Charlottesville, Virginia named Steve Gunther. Uh, Steve is a mature and very successful orthopedic surgeon, shoulder specialist in Virginia, and is still very involved in the company. And we enjoy a great relationship with Steve. He's been a spectacular inventor and founder. So he and he and a venture capitalist named Mike DeVries uh, founded the company in 2009 and did kind of the early development work on that insect glenoid. And then the current management team got involved. Genesis Innovation Group essentially acquired controlling interest of the company in 2015. That's when our team got involved. And we kind of took a technology and turned it into a company. And got that's, it. Uh, yeah. Got it. And is that where Genesis typically likes to play is sort of like taking 
you know, controlling your majority positions and sort of w- with maybe a, an existing platform or technology that is legit, has substance, and then just kind of really, really scaling it into a, into a, an actual company. Yeah, I, I'd, yeah. I'd say the opportunities that Genesis has taken advantage of have, have run the full spectrum all the way from companies that already had some revenue all the way from napkin sketches, right? And okay. so, however, the sweet spot for Genesis is to get involved in those very early stages and it provides intellectual information about the operations of the company when members of the Genesis team can be involved in the operations. And it. it gives a unique view on, you know, risks. Let's put it that way, right? Got it. So. Got it. Yep. Makes sense. And if I had to, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is you kind of were, were, were telling that that high level story about shoulder innovations is, you know, the company was founded in 2009. We're recording this in Q2 of, of, tw- of 2023. And you recently yeah. just raised your Series D. And I, I say that just because, you know, for people that are listening that are kind of new to med tech and like the startup world, what what is that? I'm, I'm, I'm doing public math now, right? But it's like you're almost- 14 or 15 yeah, years. 15, what I was going to say, 15, yeah, yeah. 15 years in the, in the making here and you're at your series D. I mean, that gives, hopefully gives folks an idea of like, these are typically long runs. I mean, like even with our our kind of accelerator, sort of a hybrid between an accelerator and incubator, we, we typically like to get involved with like more short-term projects, but at the very least, like most of these startup- you know, th- I mean, they're, they're five, seven year stents at least, you know, um, if not much, much longer. And so, you know, a lot of times you gotta, you gotta be in it, in it for the long road, you know? Yeah. There's no questions, but in particularly orthopedics and particularly within orthopedics joint replacements, it's a long game. There's no question. And yeah. I mean, you can walk out of the operating room with a successful operation that two years later is failing. Right. I mean, that's, that's, you know, not atypical in orthopedics. And so it is that long game that you have to have a perspective of even in the aspect of collecting clinical data, typical joint replacement minimum data collection period or follow-up period is two years. I mean, there's many, for example, cardiac devices where either it worked or it didn't work in the lab, right? And when the patient wakes up, you know whether it was a positive or a negative clinical outcome. In orthopedics, that's not the case at all. And so it is a long game. There's yeah. no question. Right? Yeah, no, no. And it sounds like with children innervation specifically, like Sort of the company was sort of founded on this differentiated technology of in, you said inset glenoid. Do I have that right? That's right. Exactly I mean, this right. is not my wheelhouse. That yeah, yeah. not my wheelhouse. I've never spent really any time in it. But since then, you've sort of expanded out the the portfolio to really kind of take share within this broader shoulder um, arthroplasty space. Correct? Is that that's exactly right? Okay. Yeah. Got we it. I mean we started with what we call a micro commercialization model. So took controlling interest in 2015. We put our first commercially you know commercial you know kind of glenoid in a patient in mid. 2016. And we had regulatory clearance on the insect glenoid and what I'd characterize as a relatively traditional humoral stem product, which wasn't quite the technology with which our customer base was looking for at the time. And we kind of knew that going into it, but what we found immediately, which was a little bit surprising to us, was many surgeons wanted to use our glenoid with an alternative device. So for example, our team was very involved in in Tournier and the development of the first stemless that was cleared in the United States. And so we had many surgeons and relationships that used our insect glenoid on an off-label basis with a simplicity stemless device from Tournier, which was which was a first to my knowledge in the shoulder arthroplasty space. And for us, it was a little bit of a testament to how attractive that technology was to surgeons. So all that to say, the first thing we needed to do was get a current technology humoral implant, uh, which we then released in 2019. We released additional versions, what we call augmented versions of the insect glenoid for highly erosed glenoids, so lots of bone loss. Um, that came in 2020. 
And then probably a key pivoting point for us was soon after we raised our Series C, we were able to get regulatory clearance and launch our reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was in late 2021. And as I mentioned earlier, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty being about 35, 40% of the market, suddenly bringing reverse dramatically improved our exposure, even with our current customer base to, you know, TAM, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And that, that was a, a, you know, a game changer for us from a revenue growth standpoint. So. Got it. And so, so j- just from a timeline perspective, your Series C was 2020. You said, yeah, and then late so, 2020. So, yeah. So before before that Series C, you did have clearances, and you were kind of, you know, that's correct. Yep. Okay, you were. Okay, yep. okay, yep. got it. Yep, we got were. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, perfect. Cool. Well, Rob, I, um, maybe for the next 20 minutes or so, we'll kind of go back in time a little bit, and I'd really like to kind of glean some of your experiences around, you know, a couple key functional areas, right? Fundraising being one of them. Would like to get your thoughts, especially on on kind of like early stage prototyping, alpha and beta builds, et cetera. Just because I mean, you, you've seen so much, uh, especially with your sure. uh, your experience at Genesis too. So maybe we'll riff on on these topics for you know fifteen Sounds twenty good. minutes, and then kind of wrap it up with uh, with the rapid fire portion of the the interview. But um, let's good. start out with the, the former topic that I mentioned, which is kind of early stage alpha and beta builds, right? Where you're trying to, you know, most startups don't have a ton of capital at that point. You got to be really capital efficient. You're trying to iterate quickly trying to get a gauge of like, you know, what what's good enough here. So maybe if you can talk to a little bit about like what mistakes do you often see founders make or maybe flip that and say, you know, what what have you found to be most successful in those early stages, you know, trying to be capital efficient, but yet also kind of getting to the next milestone too. Yeah, knowing my own story, the best is probably easiest for me to talk about the mistakes I make um, <laughs> and mistakes I've learned from. You know, I think I'm an engineer and I think about things in relatively engineering you know, technical sense. And that's probably a majority of startups in the medical device space are, you know, founded by people with at least technical backgrounds or, you know, commercial technical backgrounds. And, and, you know, I think that it's very easy to get tied up in how, okay, we're, we learn as engineers to be able to articulate a problem that you're solving, right? And I think we as engineers can be pretty good at that. And I think we are pretty good at, you know, creating solutions to the problem, but I think we can get a little too caught up sometimes in that technical aspect of what is the problem and what's the solution to the problem. And for me, I think where I've I've missed it at times in the past have been to to fail to recognize that even though I solve the technical problem, it just may not fit from a commercial perspective, right? And I may not be able to express the solution in ways that people understand the selling methods or the commercial pathways of getting that product to market just may not fit with norms within the industry. I may be asking my customer to change the way they do business, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And I think there can be just as much innovation in the commercial side of the business as the technical side. And at least for me, you know, that's, that's the area that's been weakest for me personally that I've learned a lot in and made a lot of mistakes in. Right. And I think that, that, you know, early stage startup entrepreneurs should consider carefully is walk through that money to or order to cash process at the beginning of your startup as opposed to waiting to the end because it's hmm. it's it, no matter how good your technology is if that doesn't work you just don't have a business right yeah I mean, that's, yeah yeah yeah. That's great. That's great thoughts. Um, I mean, if I if I had to sum it up, it's some. It's like don't get too you know, caught up in, in in the weeds. I guess you know from a technical perspective early on, and yet miss, miss the bigger picture or more specifically, you know, answering the key the key kind of commercial questions. Right? Who's going to get paid? Who's going to buy this? How, how is it going to be purchased? What workflows need to be in place in order to make this purchase happen, etc. So yeah. Um, yeah. We chat about that a lot on the on the program is like that's something that oftentimes gets missed, right? Early on, you're so focused on 
in most respects, probably is a really cool thing that you're working on, right? It's got like all these maybe additional features or benefits or, or, or whatever, and maybe solve some real, some real needs. But, you know, thinking about like the, you know, the regulatory pathway, what that, what that looks like, you know, thinking about the economics and, and how this is actually yeah. commercialized. Yeah. An example of what I'm talking, we have a Genesis has a business in the MRI space that has developed in an absolutely incredible technology. However, in their early go to market, you know, kind of efforts, they found that no matter how good their technology was, what they were asking the customer to do was look at a second monitor and a second mm-hmm. set of data in order to confirm, you know, it's a little above, you know, my understanding, but essentially they were asking the workflow to change mm-hmm. and that completely stopped revenue. It was just, that was a non-starter. And so, you know, there's a need to go back and, all right, let's reformulate the product a little bit. And it didn't change the technology but that was probably something that was identifiable much earlier in the development process and would have accelerated the, you know, let's just say value creation for the business and, and patients. Right? Yeah, that's such a good example. It reminds me of a recent conversation. And by the time this is published, I think this particular interview will have, have gone live as well. But it was uh, with uh, Waquas Al-Sadiq, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. He's the founder and CEO of Biotricity, and they do um, they build uh, remote wearables, basically, for mm-hmm. the cardiac space. And he he mentioned one of the one of their early mistakes was focusing too much on clinician feedback as it, as it pertains to the product and not necessarily on sort of the adjacent stakeholders and their workflows. Interesting. And they just, yeah, they just right, missed out right. on some things, right? Like, yeah, you know, they yeah. were, they Good realized point. that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Docs yeah. weren't yeah. necessarily even using their product or touching their product. They may have some good thoughts around the data they want to see, but in terms of like how the, the patient or the consumer inter- interacts with the device, et cetera, it was, it was largely the nurses and the techs that were. Right. It was the other people that are actually pushing the buttons yeah. that experience their product, right? Yeah. It's yeah, really yeah. Good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's kind, yeah. Of, kind of lines with your feedback. I want to be sensitive to your schedule, but let's talk a little bit maybe about ClinReg and then kind of jumped it to fundraising too. Cause I know you just recently wrapped up your series D. So I'd, get, I'd like to get your thoughts just on the, on that, that topic in general, but let's ClinReg. You mentioned this earlier, like the orthopedic space. I mean, these are, these are implants yeah. that it's not like 30 day follow-up is going to lead to either reg, reg uh, clearance or approval, or even really commercial adoption yeah. for the most part. So when you think about this function in general, right, making sure that your reg and clinic strategies line up and how you approach that, sometimes it, it can, it can be kind of daunting, right. To any early stage founder trying to map out, how do I get this done with a certain amount of capital, et cetera. So do you have yeah. any like thoughts in general? What, what do you typically advise early stage founders or CEOs? How do, how do you, how do you advise them to approach this in general, you know, heading into kind of their, their first key kind of reg and clinical milestones. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CBRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.